Well, good morning, Beach Grove. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I did make it, indeed. It's a shock. Um, that kind of defines Matt and I's relationship, Matt just being patient with me. So thanks for keeping on inviting me, brother. Um, thank you guys for being here this morning. And I just want to say, um, you know, Matt is a, he's a close friend of mine. We talk probably, well, we do talk every day, let's be real. Um, and uh, two things you need to know about Matt. Matt loves this church. He loves this church. And I've just been so proud of watching him grow into this role and so excited to see what's, what's in the season for you guys and what's on the horizon. Um, but I hope you know that. I hope you know, first of all, that he loves this church. And in my opinion, there's, there's nobody, the second thing, there's nobody better for this moment to lead you guys than Matt. He truly is um, just a great pastor. He just has a heart for people, heart for this place, heart for this community. And um, you're blessed. You're truly blessed. And Kyle as well. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Kyle as well. I've known Matt and Kyle both for many years. And, and when he told me that Kyle was coming on, I was, I was very excited for you guys. It's a step in the right direction uh, just in terms of, you know, Kyle and knowing him and his, his heart for worship and um, just really excited for y'all. So um, thankful to be here this morning. Really excited for it. Um, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. And our, our text this morning stems from a conversation that started back in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11. So let's back up to verse 1 to kind of enter the scene. Okay, so look with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Now up until this point in Luke chapter 11, uh, the disciples have been on their journey with Jesus for a significant time, and throughout Luke's gospel, it is clear that Jesus has already modeled in his ministry his need for routine, intentional times of prayer. He prayed at his baptism in Luke 3. He prayed before choosing the apostles in Luke 6. He prays just before drawing the crowd of thousands and then miraculously feeding them in Luke 9. It was normal for Jesus to just disappear to remote places, to mountaintops, to pray. The disciples have seen Jesus pray privately to himself and among the disciples and in front of the crowds. They have watched prayer animate the life of Jesus. And now they see it in John the Baptist and his disciples. And they wanted to understand how to do it for themselves. They wanted to share in the experience. And so, like any good student would, they asked their teacher to teach them. And interestingly enough, I think this is the only recorded instance that we have in the Gospels where we actually see a disciple say to his rabbi, teach me how to do this. The only time we see one of the twelve say to Jesus, teach me to pray. And so in verses 2 through 4, 
Jesus tells his disciples what to pray. He gives them a prayer, pretty basic in its outline, the Lord's Prayer as we call it, an address, a couple of statements, a few requests. And of course, there's a lot we can learn from prayer and about prayer by focusing on those six lines. But this morning, I want to look at the discourse that follows the actual prayer. Because when the disciple asked Jesus to teach them to pray, this is a significant part of the teaching, verses 5 through 13. A significant part of the teaching that we can't overlook. So after giving them the prayer itself in verses 2 through 4, Jesus follows this by giving his disciples two key principles or attitudes to frame and give shape to the prayers that they will pray. First of all, to pray with persistence, and then to pray with assurance. Pray with persistence, and pray with assurance. So let's look at verse 5. After giving them the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, in verse 5, gives the disciples a short parable to consider. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he oftentimes used parables in his teachings. Parables are basically just a simple, relatable story that intend to point an audience to a spiritual truth. So let's break down the parable here in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Okay, here's the scenario. It's the middle of the night. A man has come to a friend's house, and he's in dire straits. Because someone has stopped into his home for an unexpected visit in the middle of the night. And according to the social customs of the time, he'd actually be a pretty poor host to have no provisions for that guest. Something like three loaves of bread was a satisfactory amount to offer this kind of guest. But the problem, of course, in those days, you can't just run to the local Walmart to buy a few groceries in a pinch. You had to make bread pretty much every day if you wanted bread that day and then make more the next day. But here's the homeowner out of his daily bread and a visitor drops in and he has nothing to offer. So I can kind of picture this man realizing his pantry's empty, starting to sweat a little bit, and he hatches a plan. Hey, stay right here. I have to go get your bread. I'll be right back. And in a rush, he makes for his neighbor's house, which, by the way, I hope he kind of knows this guy. I mean, just left this guy in his house by himself anyway. If the homeowner returns empty-handed, he's going to feel immense shame and embarrassment. And so he urges his neighbor for a loan of three loaves with the intention of paying him back. And we see in verse 7 that the neighbor will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay, now imagine with me, let's just take a second to 
Imagine one of your neighbors, not your favorite neighbor. I want you to pick the neighbor that kind of gives you the creeps, okay? You know exactly which one I'm talking about. This neighbor rings your doorbell at midnight. And what happens? Well, the dogs start howling, and the toddler that you just got down to sleep again is startled awake, and you're coming to, just groggily trying to figure out what's going on, and the doorbell rings again, and maybe you grab some sort of makeshift weapon. I usually grab a Chaco. I feel like they're easy to throw pretty hard if they hit somebody. Maybe you're half-dressed. There's all kinds of things that could be going on right now. And you go to the door, and there's your slightly creepy neighbor. And he's asking you for fresh bread for a house guest. What would you say? Probably something you probably can't say in here, right? Now, this, uh, this might be a different culture than our own, but I got to say, I really resonate with the sentiment of the neighbor here in verse 7. I'm just here to tell you. I get it. I'm the father of three kids, soon to be four. They're all under five years old. Prayers appreciated. And, uh, and there are plenty of nights where getting all of your children to sleep feels like you've just competed in an Olympic sport. I mean, it is tough. Matt and Chelsea are kind of walking through this right now with their Madeline. It's tough, and they're figuring it out, right? As a parent, there is no greater joy than checking that baby monitor and seeing a sleeping baby. It never gets old. I still love it, right? And there's also, simultaneously, nothing more devastating than an accidental noise that startles that baby awake, right? Now, this neighbor had it even worse than I do because there were no sound machines in the first century, no separate rooms even for beds. This was a one-room house, more than likely. There were mats everywhere. This guy's stepping over people. Nobody wants that. Now remember, Jesus started this parable with a question. He asked a question of his disciples. He said, which of you disciples who has a friend would do this? And being mindful of the social customs of hospitality, not wanting the shame that it might bring, I would imagine that the disciples should all respond to Jesus' question positively. Of course we would do that. Because even if they knew they might be met with some resistance, they would feel they had to plead with the neighbor. Why? Because the homeowner, with no bread, is left completely at the mercy of his neighbor. And so what choice does he have but to persist? He has nothing more than dependence and that dependence, that persistence is key. Look at verse 8. Look what Jesus says. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Forget the relationship. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now that word there, that that word anidea in the Greek, impudence, persistence, it's a very unique word. We see impudence in the ESV, and that, and that probably highlights the presumptuous 
immodest, almost rude nature of this man's request. The NIV translates this word as shameless audacity. The audacity that this man must have to hope against the odds, to make his request again in the face of being denied. Here we visualize an unembarrassed man making a bold and persistent request. And Jesus says, it is precisely the man's persistence that motivates the neighbor to get up and give him the loaves. Now, we don't know. Maybe this guy was just ready to go back to bed. And maybe he just didn't want to stir the house any more than it already had been. But the man's persistence, we know, was a critical ingredient that made the neighbor oblige. And so Jesus goes on to give us the takeaway in verse 9, the most memorable snippet from this parable. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now those exhortations in verse 9, to ask, to seek, and to knock, in the Greek, are all present imperatives. What does that mean? That just means that these are actions that are meant to continue on or to be repeated in an ongoing basis. They're meant to become a habitual action in the life of Christ's disciples. So hear this, from the mouth of Jesus, we are not only given permission, we are expected to routinely Make our requests known to God with persistence. To ask, seek, and knock. But the key discovery in this parable is in what it reveals to us about our Heavenly Father. See, Jesus doesn't give us this parable to draw a direct one-to-one parallel from the neighbor who was woken up to our Heavenly Father. Jesus is actually drawing a contrast here between the neighbor and how the Father and how the Father would handle such an encounter. See, first of all, the neighbor had to be woken up. But the Father never sleeps. He will not be caught in groggy surprise when one of us knocks on his door. He's the same God of Exodus 12 who keeps vigil in the night, who's awake, who's watching over his people. We see the neighbor was annoyed at the midnight interruption. But we can run to the Father at any hour knowing that we will not be a bother. He's the same God of Isaiah 30 who tells us that he waits to be gracious to us. He welcomes these visits, no matter the time. There is no guarantee that this neighbor would help the man. In fact, this man could have just as easily been without loaves as this homeowner. Sorry, I don't have bread either. I don't know what to tell you. 
But the Father has a pantry of provision that never empties. He's the same God of Psalm 132 who says that he will abundantly bless and satisfy the poor with bread. And the neighbor was fine to send the man away empty-handed until the man persisted and caved in. Maybe with a begrudging spirit. Here's your bread. But the Father cares for our needs so differently, doesn't he? Even though it is far more audacious for sinners like you and me to enter the courts of a holy, holy, holy God, we are not met, waved away. We're not met with reluctance. We're not loaned a few measly loaves that were hounded down to pay back. Because Luke 12 tells us, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so Jesus' point here really is to show us this. That if a bare persistence will move a reluctant man with uncertain motives, then how much more must our gracious, compassionate, watching, waiting Heavenly Father be moved by the persistence of His children? The neighbor's motives, they might be mixed in granting the request. But the psalmist tells us that our Father's motives are far from mixed. They are abounding in steadfast love. That he intends to satisfy the longing soul. Do you believe that? I know we hear that. I know we hear these verses. We hear these truths this morning. We hear that it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that He intends to satisfy the longing soul, that He waits to be gracious to us, that He keeps vigil in the night, He's watching over us. I know we hear these things. Do we believe them? Do we believe them? When it comes to the prospect of prayer, my greatest worry for myself and for our churches, is that we approach the open throne of grace as little more than functional atheists. I would say that one main reason we often do not pray is because we just do not believe in prayer. So the issue is not just a lack of persistence in prayer. The root issue is a lack of prayer. I recently saw a statistic that about 15% of Christians in a typical church have a rich prayer life. So that's a handful of us in here right now who feel good. But for the overwhelming majority of us, the starting place is right here in verse 9. We just need to begin asking and seeking and knocking. And we need to make this a regular part of our life with God. 
The great man of prayer, George Mueller, once said that the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is not by attending prayer workshops. It's not by reading prayer books. It's to continue praying. To continue praying. It's that simple. But we have to believe that it matters and that we need it. Which, by the way, if the Son of God himself felt it necessary to persistently pray, then who are we saying that we are if we don't need it? I think another main reason that we don't pray is tied to a craving for independence. Culturally, our world is constantly hammering into our head this idea, which, by the way, your culture is not neutral. It's, it's got its own agenda. It's trying to disciple you. And your culture is trying to disciple you into thinking that the key to life is independence, autonomy, self-sufficiency. Our reach for independence is the oldest sin in the book. It stretches all the way back to the garden where Eve wanted what? To be like God. And so I think prayer doesn't come naturally to us because it completely interrupts our quest for independence. But this is what makes prayer one of God's greatest gifts to us. Because in prayer, we come to a deeper realization of who we really are. Desperate, dependent, weak people. And it also gives us a deeper realization of who God really is. A merciful, gracious giver of good things. Paul Miller's insight on this is helpful. He's written much on prayer. He says that when Jesus aimed to teach us to pray, he told stories of weak people who knew they couldn't do life on their own. So the friend at midnight gets access not because he's strong, but because he's desperate. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. So the only right manner of prayer is persistent prayer. Because we never arrive at a point in our lives where we escape our need of God. We never come to a place of true independence. And the more that we pursue persistence in prayer, the more that we plant ourselves in the facts of our inability and God's ability, our insufficiency and God's sufficiency, our confusion and God's wisdom. The persistence is not for God's sake. The persistence is for our sake. Persistent prayer is not to magically induce blessing from God. It is to help us grasp our dependence and that there's a giver standing behind every good gift. 
And we must remember this. We must remember that the prevailing goal of prayer is not to get something. The prevailing goal of prayer is to become something. A dependent people who rely upon an all-powerful God. And so in verses 5 through 9, Jesus, in parable form, has encouraged us to pray with persistence. But before he puts the matter to rest, Jesus finishes his teaching moment with an assuring word for his disciples. Look what he says in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. I love that verse 10 is here. Because people like me need verse 10. Now, you might look at that and say, well, it doesn't really do much. It just kind of restates what's there in verse 9. It doesn't add any new insight. But it seems to me as if Jesus is doubling down here with a desire to assure our hearts. He doesn't want us to gloss over or miss what he's just asked of us in verse 9. He wants us to believe it, to rest assured in it. He wants to make sure that we heard him in verse 9. And so he tells it to us all over again in verse 10. In verse 9 is the petition to ask and seek and knock. Then verse 10 is the promise of giving and finding and opening. Verse 10 on its own seems like a pretty bold statement. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Everyone? Now let's be clear about what this verse is not saying. Jesus is not suggesting that we always get what we ask for exactly in the way that we ask for it. We do not always find what exactly we seek in the way that we seek it. The point is to understand, though, that when we pray persistently, we can be assured, confident, that God does supply what we need and will respond properly. But that's tough. Because sometimes that response in the moment can feel like God saying no to us. We've all at times in our lives faced a moment or a season of unanswered prayer. And maybe you're in that today. Maybe that is your reality that you walked in with this morning. And maybe this verse is hard for you. How do we reconcile that unanswered prayer with a verse like this one? There's two thoughts on this. One, one comes from a guy named J.I. Packer and the other from Tim Keller. J.I. Packer says, God always acts positively when a believer lays a situation of need before him, but he does not always act in the way or at the speed asked for. In meeting the need, he does what he knows to be best when he knows it is best to do it. 
Keller is even more to the point. Keller says, our prayers are answered precisely in the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knew. So even better than the neighbor of verse 8, does God rise to give us whatever we need in prayer? And we don't always understand or grasp His seeming answer perfectly, but we can rest in the assurance that God is ready to give when we ask. There's a willingness in God not only to hear us, but to do something in us, for us, and through us in prayer. And to help us better picture this, Jesus gives us an illustration in verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? This might seem like an odd word picture, but the point is pretty plain and simple. How cruel and evil would it be for us to answer our child's request for something to eat by giving them something dangerous and harmful instead? How wrong would it be to replace our child's egg for breakfast with a scorpion? And then verse 13, Jesus says, If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You and I are people who still deal with a sin nature. We are still very much capable of evil. And yet we find it inconceivable that we'd ever treat one of our children in this way. And so if that's true then how much more true is it to see that our Heavenly Father, in whom there is no evil, is a gracious and good provider for His children. And that specific good gift that Luke mentions here is the Holy Spirit, given to those who ask Him. Now, in one sense, if we are in Christ, then we already have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we don't have to invite the Holy Spirit into a place where He already is. We don't have to wonder if He is accessible. But we can and we should ask for and seek the filling and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We should seek that. This passage doesn't just help us in our method of prayer praying boldly, praying with assurance. It also helps us in the content of our prayers. One of the ways that this passage just hit me personally as I worked through this, this sermon is thinking about how often I come to the Father with my requests and how prone I am to asking God for the fish and the eggs. Those aren't bad requests. Nothing wrong with them, because we have needs. We're encouraged in the Lord's Prayer, actually, to ask God to give us this day our daily bread. We need to be sustained. 
But the problem is my eyes can get so fixed on the plate in front of me that I can forget that God knows my need already. And He'll meet that need. And perhaps what I need to pray for in many moments of my life is not just the circumstances in front of me, but for the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life. If I was bold enough and assured enough to make the aim of my prayers more spirit-focused instead of circumstance-focused, if I was to ask the Lord to help me walk by the Spirit and put the flesh to death, then I can face every circumstance. And it's even better for us to realize that the Spirit Himself prays for us. That we ought to yield to Him as we pray. And maybe this is exactly the kind of prayer that God is waiting for you and me to pray. Think about it this way. Let me ask a question. When is the last time that you asked God directly to see more of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? When's the last time you asked that? And could it be that we have not because we ask not? And what would begin to happen to us spiritually in our homes, in our individual walk with the Lord? What would begin to happen at Beach Grove Baptist Church? What would begin to happen in this community if we committed to praying with persistence for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to work within and through us? with an assurance that our Father gives good gifts and is ready to give us what we need, namely, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know what I love about this passage? The passage reinforces itself. It teaches itself. The disciple, what does he do? He asks Jesus to help him, and Jesus helps him. The disciple seeks wisdom, and Jesus grants wisdom. And he goes even a step further in sending us the helper who is always with us. He's showing us real time how easy this is. We only need to humble ourselves enough to ask and seek and knock. Why would Jesus deny us what makes us more like him? Why would Jesus deny us what makes us more like him? If you're being honest, maybe the reason that you haven't come to him and you haven't gotten here with prayer yet Maybe it's because you're afraid of what he will think of you. You're a little afraid, a little ashamed, if you're being honest, 
This might be true for other people, but you're not sure it's true for you. Our God is not unapproachable. Our God is not too busy running the universe to meet us where we are. We don't have to preface our message to him with an apology for bothering him. Because here's the truth. Jesus already loved you at your rock bottom worst. As an enemy of God, he loved you. So what makes us think that he will love us any less now as his children? The truth is we serve a God who did not hold back his greatest gift from us, his son, who not only became flesh to dwell among us, but has also sent his spirit to dwell within us. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not do it? See, he's not a neighbor who locks his doors down, too important to be inconvenienced with your great and small needs. He's actually hoping you'll knock. He's a good father who's awake and waiting and ready to give you everything you need. Most of all, himself. So let's go to him together this morning in prayer. As we bow our heads, I'm just going to challenge you. Maybe you haven't talked to the Lord in months. Maybe it's been months. There's no better time than right now than to just come to Him in desperate need. You don't have to have the right words. You don't have to have the right answers. Your Father will help you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much. that we can come to you at all. That you have made it possible for us to enter your courts with our needs, with praise, with confession. And we can do those things knowing that you will not have us removed. You will help us. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you invite us to ask and seek and knock. And Lord, no matter what we are going through this morning, maybe some of us are, are just not walking with you. We're, we're just not in relationship with you. And I pray that we admit that to you, that we come to you and we ask for your grace and your mercy and your help.
And Lord, some of us are just neglecting prayer. Pray that you help us be re-energized to pray without ceasing. To recognize how good you are and how powerful you are to meet us right where you need to meet us. To give us all things that we need. Lord, when we have problems, when we are faced with circumstances, I pray that you become our first priority. Help us, Lord. You're a good neighbor who waits to be gracious. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen.